Hey, y'all. Welcome to Preaching to the Choir podcast with your host, me, Jen Randall. Today's episode is a little bit different in that I'm the only one here. Just me. Just me alone in my closet. You know, you love that. Um, But how is it collaboration then, you ask, because that's what this entire season is about. Well, the collaboration today comes from you, sweet friends. You answered questions over the last two months on our social media sites, which um, if you have not followed us yet on Instagram, you need to go do that. It's show collective. It's super simple. Um, but we asked you some questions and we are going to answer them for you today. So this is how we're collaborating. The star of today's show is you. So over the past couple months, we've asked some questions online, um, specifically about questions you have about show choir that are still lingering, or maybe that you'd be too afraid to ask someone else. Um, and then also top like pet peeves or things you feel like you have to explain over and over again to people who are not show choir people. So we're going to start with the question section today. And like I said, these are things that you have asked um, and the demographics of people who have asked questions. For example, just in case you're curious, most of the time, it's a pretty much a 50-50 split between people who have been doing this for at least five years and people who are brand new. So it's never a problem to ask a question, even if you've been doing this for a while, guys. We all have questions. That's normal. If you stopped having questions about something... That's actually not good. (laughs) That means you've stopped with the learning mindset. And we always want to have that, especially as educators. Um, But as people who are learning more about something that is really ever evolving, it's okay to have questions. I have questions all the time still. And in fact, for some of these questions, I've reached out to others to get their answers as well. So let's start with one that I feel like is pretty common and we get often, but um, it bears repeating and there's no reason not to not to say it. Um, so the question is, what are some things to think about when choosing parts of a song to use as far as arranging goes? Um, and I love that question because I think that a lot of us who have been doing it for a while often will just hand off music to the arranger and be like, this is the song I want to use. And maybe not knowing the full process or knowing the full um, concept behind how that all works itself out. I think a general formula, again, general, and this can be certainly done differently, that most arrangers would say they use or directors who uh, edit their own audio would probably say that they use, is that you don't want, first of all, as a rule of thumb, the song to really ever be longer than three minutes. And that is tippity tops. I think 2.30 is probably more of a happy a happy range, 2.30 to 3. And then sometimes we do things called quick hitters. Um, and those are under two minutes. So first of all, you want to look at the length of how long you need this song to be. If it's a ballad, you can run up to the three minute marker. If it's a mash of multiple pieces, like a novelty number or something like that, where it's a lot, a lot of songs pushed together, you might get closer to the three minute marker. But staying somewhere in the happy zone between 2.30 and 2.45-ish, you know, somewhere in that range up to three is probably best. That may seem crazy to you if you've been doing this for a long time because I think that the old marker used to be three minutes. But as time has gone on, even that has started to feel stagnant sometimes when you run a number. So uh, knowing how repetitive the song is is an important way to choose how long it's going to be also. All right, so you've decided uh, it's just going to be, it's a second number in your show and you are looking for it to be a regular length. We don't need a quick hitter. So for regular lengths, I think what you're looking for 
as having the some sort of the hook at the beginning of the song. That's pretty common for anything that's up-tempo especially. Doesn't mean they're singing right away. Doesn't mean they're dancing right away. It's just something that grabs the attention for some reason or another, right? We want to leave that intact. It's obviously good to have one verse. Do you need a second verse? This is a hotly contested topic. Um, I am team no. I am team skip after the first verse, go first verse, chorus. And then after first verse and chorus, I would go to either bridge leading to a dance break or directly into a dance break and then come out into like a bridge scenario before a final chorus. It's a pretty standard setup that I think a lot of us could agree with. Most of the time nowadays, especially the second verse feels repetitive if you are not mashing a song. Now, if you are mashing a song together, um, then you're probably not going to use the full first verse and maybe not even the full full chorus. That's when it gets really dicey. I think if you are mashing together multiple pieces, it's pretty important that you check with an arranging pro and not just make assumptions on that. Um, but if you, let's say you have a piece of stock music, which by the way, you are legally allowed to cut things out of, you are not allowed to add things to, but if you're using a stock piece from let's say pepper or something, um, that's a great way to look at how do I cut this down for my needs. You would take out probably the second verse. Uh, so that's a pretty, pretty standard way of doing that. Again, there are other ways, but I, that's the one I like when I'm stuck and I'm not sure where to start. All right. Second question. Uh, costumes are always a hot topic. So this one is really appropriate. It says, can we get some tips on choosing costumes that will look flattering on everyone? Um, this is kind of a two-part question because I'm going to go into the second half of this, um, later in our, uh, in our rants <laughs> section, so to speak. But this one's a good question too, because, um, as someone who falls into a non-traditional sizing category, although at this point in my life I've come to realize that just means average. I am the size of the average American woman. But when you are in high school and you are being put in these outfits, a lot of times directors without really thinking about it are size shaming kids. Um, and we have to be super careful about how we refer to sizes uh, with students. In fact, there's really no reason to. You're taking measurements nine times out of 10. Sometimes it's a size. And there's no moral or value judgment attached to that. So we want to make sure that we are not attaching that for kids. Um, so as far as looking flattering on everyone, a couple things to keep in mind. I'm going to start with the guys just to get that out of the way, even though honestly, that's usually the easier task as far as flattering goes. Um, you want to think about things that are not going to be too tight based on just their styling. So when you're looking at a pant um, style, a lot of times the slim pant is, you know, the more current look, let's say. Um, I'm not saying we have to go back to 90s, like billowy suit pants by any means. As I'm sitting in my master closet, I can look across to my husband's side here and see his suit from high school graduation that he's got in the back corner there that is absolutely pleated front pants and just a little bit almost hammer pants. But yeah, we don't have to go that direction. But just a standard, a straight fit, a straight look is better probably than a slim fit if you're looking to really flatter everyone involved. Um, and then as far as jackets go, again, slim jackets, more the look at this point. You really need to know what you have as far as your kids go because even if you are in the correct size for a kiddo, if the slim shaping doesn't really fit their body type, um, it's going to make them feel like they stick out and they may, and visually it's going to change how it looks on them. So 
keeping everything flattering means going more neutral in the fit for guys. It's not, like I said, you don't need to go all the way to the other side of the spectrum, but um, just keeping in mind that guys' body shapes are different too, especially through the shoulder and the midsection. Um, there tends to be less diversity in, in what I would say is the, the trunk area, but uh, in guys, but that's not always the case either. So just knowing who your students are and taking a look at that first. Um, I had a director who mentored me who early on said, um, choose for your, for your, um, most outsized kids first. And they used a different term at the time. Um, and, and I know that that's advice that's good in theory. Um, but really everybody is shaped so differently. It's not even about the size. It's about looking for things that will flatter all shapes of people, not just like weight. We want to stay away from talking about weight. Um, all right. In the second half of this, let's look at the, if you're dealing with, um, um, with female, uh, sizing and shapes, I think if you're looking at dresses, the key thing to keep in mind is that first of all, spaghetti straps can be very hard to navigate from a dancing standpoint and also really only look good on a very small contingency of people. I would stay away from a thin strap. Um, two fingers, uh, as the width is a nice way to go for that as a minimum. Um, but really halters or, um, a cross back where it's a thicker strap coming to a cross or even a one shoulder that's a thicker one shoulder can be more supportive, but also more flattering on, on most, on most females. And again, I think if you talk to your costumer, you're going to hear that echoed most of the time. Um, so staying away probably from a spaghetti strap, um, is, is a good way to handle that. First of all, secondly, you want to look at necklines. If you're looking at dresses, necklines, um, really, if you are dealing with a neckline situation that is going to be very straight across, um, some people may think that's going to be more flattering. I tend to think that actually is more of a harsh line to draw. Um, and is less flattering on some body types. Um, usually a gentle V or a sweetheart is usually more flattering in those cases. Um, but again, it really depends upon your kids and what you're looking for, for the overall outcome of the look. So talk to your costumer about your concerns and your thoughts, or if you're like saying, you know, we've, we really, my, my female students last year didn't like this about our last year's dress. Make sure that your customer knows that. So going forward, they can help guide you in the direction of something that is more comfortable for them. Because honestly, yes, do we want it to look cool? Sure, do we want it to look good? Yes, but like, they have to be able to move in these things, guys. And they have to be comfortable enough to wear to move in, okay? And then as far as lengths go, if you're worrying about the tightness of your skirt and the dancing, then your skirt is too tight. Like, just we don't need a slim tight cut on the skirt. It's got to be at least a straight and probably a little bit of an A-line for them to be ordered to be able to move in it. Um, is a shorter skirt easier to move in? In theory, if it's tighter, yes. But then you're dealing with a lot going on with the fact that your skirt is short. So, I mean, personal preference wise, I think that's less flattering in general. Um, but that's, you've got to decide what's working for you and your kids. Um, also, do not be afraid to go towards a pants look for your female singers. Um, and I am still saying female in this context because we were talking about the anatomy of the body at this point. So um, when we're dealing with um, the traditional female anatomy, you're dealing with um, a top half needing to be covered, supported, and flattered, as well as the bottom half. So don't just assume that you've handled the top half and the bottom can be whatever or vice versa. And if you're looking for a pants look, 
talk to your costumer again about fitting and things like that. Um, jumpsuits certainly can be a thing, but they've got to be fit impeccably. I think separates are becoming more and more common again, which is great. And really, it should fit what is happening in your show. It shouldn't be a one look that you use over and over again, um, unless that's really just budgetary-wise where you're at. And if that's the case, you need to make sure that it, it does work for multiple multiple things. Um, so as far as making things look flattering on everyone, it's just about looking at everyone. That's the bottom line. Um, and that way also, if you're, if you're purchasing at least one thing new or one look new every year, you're ensuring that the kids in that year are getting things that are, are fitted to them and that work for them and are not just somebody's hand-me-down, which is fine. I have no problem with that. But hand-me-downs that are fitted to you are never the same as what's fitted for you or thought of with you in advance. So keeping that in mind, I think those are my tips about it. I've talked with a few other directors in preparation for that conversation as well as two costumers and we all kind of agree on those tips. So that gives you a starting point but again don't be afraid to have conversations with people if you're not sure. All right next we have what is some advice for college age students who want to go into this more full-time either as a choreographer or a director? Uh, This is a question that I get very often, but I'm glad that it was asked so we can address it again. This is also something that gets addressed in a lot of episodes of the podcast uh, from the perspective of those of us who have been doing it for a while. Um, I think the first most important thing here is that we've got to separate those two um, professions out. First of all, choreographer is different than a director. Obvious for obvious reasons, directors are teaching the vocals, choreographers are teaching the movement, all right? For directors, there is really still at this point only one path to being a director, and that is um, you are becoming a vocal music instructor with a school district. Because there are very few show choirs that are outside of school district um, or schools in general uh, purview. And so in order to be in the room with them, you really need to have that music ed degree or at least that teaching certification to be in the room. I am very team, you need the degree for that. Uh, I know there are a lot of elements in what we do that you wouldn't necessarily need a degree for. And I'm not saying there aren't people who may not be qualified without the degree. There absolutely are always, always people who break the mold and that's okay. But in general, if directing is what you're looking to do, that is a music education degree. With that said, your music ed degree is not going to prepare you in great ways for being a specific show choir director. It's going to prepare you to teach choral music. Um, And for better or worse, it's going to mainly focus most of the time on Western European art song and and, uh, mid-19th century, uh, sorry, mid-20th century sensibilities of choral music in America. So with that said, obviously there's more you're going to need to do to be an effective show choir director. That is literally why Show Collective exists, <laughs> is to provide professional development for show choir professionals because I felt like for years we weren't getting that from somewhere. The only place realistically that you can go in person to get show choir training, though well, there's two of them right now, but the 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 gold standard that I you know send people to first if they've never been and, and they need a lot of background on show choir quickly is Show Choir Camps of America over the summer. They have a teacher's camp component that's fabulous. Um, there are other camps around the country that are smaller that also do teacher's camp components. So if you see one of those, that would be a great option as well. And so camps, the flip side of that coin is I do in-person work with Show Collective, which I'm hoping to do more of in the future because I think it's so valuable. Um, we do a, a small retreat-style workshop for uh, female directors and choreographers only. It's called Women of Show. It is every uh, spring, late spring usually. So this year, the coming year, it's going to be May 
4th through the 7th in Orlando, Florida. Yes, it's a Disney World. Do I love Disney? Yes. If you know me, you know I do. But the reason I have it there is because it is kind of an insulated bubble. And also it gives us the opportunity to be really creative in a fully immersive theatrical environment. So um, that's an opportunity to meet people and talk to people and collaborate, just like we've been talking about this season. Uh, but also comps are a great time to, you know, meet your fellow directors. And if you are in a geographic area where there's a lot of directors and you guys have never all like, you know, tried to get together for drinks or chatting, do that. That's a great way to learn more as well about doing this and what you need to know. So that is my college age advice is try to get a teaching certification. So you have that under your belt. You can do that after college as well in a lot of states, but take some ed classes, see if you can get that music ed cert. Now let's talk about choreography. That's the other side of the coin here. Uh, to be a choreographer full-time requires you to have enough groups that you can do that without having a secondary job. That's a full-time job. That's how that works. But getting into it, there is not a simple pathway I can explain for you. And if you go back and listen to episodes with choreographers on the podcast, they will say that to you as well. There's no specific path to that. Knowing people and working connections is certainly one way to do it, but there's a big difference between pestering directors that you don't know, asking them to hire you, um, versus, again, the high school that you went to maybe needs a spring a couple spring numbers choreographed. That would be a great place to start. Basically getting your foot in the door by showing what you can do is the best way to start that. But again, I encourage you to not listen to me on that and go back to listen to other episodes of the podcast that are choreographers. You can listen to Steph Hyatt, Alex Hall, uh, Stephen Todd is on there as well. Um, I'm forgetting other ones off the top of my head, but there are many. So you can go back and look at those and they will give you some great insight into how that worked for them and how to keep that happening in the future and moving forward. Oh gosh, this season, you can go listen to um, Mara and Eric. That's a great episode about it as well. Oh, I love this question. This next one says, suggestions for affordable locations to host a retreat. You know I love a retreat. Okay, so when you're looking at hosting a retreat, I think there are a couple of important things to keep in mind that may not be what you we were thinking of. First of all, are you rehearsing or are you feelings? <laughs> because there's really two kinds of retreats. The ones where you're rehearsing a ton and you throw in some of the what we call touchy-feely stuff, some of the um, team building, some of the um, social emotional learning components. Or there's the retreat where it's highly, highly leaning on the social emotional context and less about rehearsing or no rehearsing. So first of all, I think you need to decide which kind of retreat you're having. Once you've decided that, there's a couple different directions you can go. I think a lot of us don't like to have our retreats on campus for the simple reason that that makes it feel very like a regular day. However, I think that oftentimes we overlook just the notion of an alternate location on campus. Campus can still be a great fit for that. Maybe you've got, maybe just first of all, think about the band hall. Like you probably don't rehearse in there very often. If you do, then that's different for you. But that is already an alternate location that will spark a lot more focus in your kids because it's new and different. What about the cafeteria? Is it great acoustically? Eh, but will it help them pay attention? Yeah, because you're in an alternate location. Or let's say you've got one of those gymatorium kind of situations, but you don't really ever practice in there. You're never really on that stage. Try that. Um, some of us have really wide open library spaces right now where you can maybe do a sectional in there. Um, those kinds of locations on your own campus 
can be really, really freeing from a rehearsal standpoint, or even just a, like I said, a social emotional learning standpoint can work in those places too. More intimate places I'm thinking, uh, though, for that kind of an event. Um, if your weather isn't the surface of the sun, I live in Texas, so I don't know anything about that. But if your weather is decent when you have yours, you can also think about having it outside, even just in a parking lot can be kind of a fun, different idea. Also, another thought would be to have it at a middle school or elementary campus on a weekend, because likely your district is not going to charge you to do that. But again, it still gets them out of their everyday rehearsal spaces. So they're going to focus and pay attention a lot better. Be more vulnerable together because when they are more vulnerable as a group, that's when your social emotional learning concepts really can fly. So I suggest just taking them out of their everyday scenario. Now, if you are looking for overnight or multi-day scenarios, uh, the first place I would always suggest that you look is, well, depending upon your budget, is local um, camps and retreat grounds. Lots of times churches have those in your area or youth organizations or nonprofits host those kind of areas. They they are oftentimes affordable, especially when you are just outside of their peak season. So if you're having it in, in September, they're oftentimes still having staff around um, and they could host you for that for cheaper than what you would pay during their peak season. The other option, of course, and it's generally more pricey is the hotel option. If you're looking at a hotel option where you're in a ballroom, I think my best piece of advice is to not have the kids spend the night. Do it locally so the kids can sleep in their own homes, but then you're just paying for the facility during the day. Again, you've got them out of their regular space, but you are not paying through the nose to have them spend the night. If you really want the overnight component, maybe just pick one of the nights to do that. Um, but also knowing, again, that can be pricey. So those are my favorite places to do retreats. I think those are the most logical places to do retreats as well. Um, but my biggest piece of advice is just get them creatively outside of their everyday rehearsal space. All right. Our next one is a two-part question. Um, they're related here. Okay. So recruiting tips and tricks and secrets if you're not the curricular director, ooh, this one's so good, as in, she means, this follow-up says, as in, you're not the human in the building that see the kids Monday through Friday each week. Okay, so first of all, when we were talking about how directors generally are the full-time choir instructor, that's why I said it's not always the case, because it isn't always the case, and I do recognize that. So in this scenario, we're talking about somebody who is a contract service employee, likely, um, part-time coach payment, probably something along those lines. So the best piece of advice, the number one thing I would say in this scenario is that you have got to get that Monday through Friday everyday choir director to be team show choir. If that is not a thing that can happen, I hate to say this, but it's never going to flourish. It's just not. You have to have everyone on the team together in this one. So if you're in that scenario and you're getting pushed back from the nine to five director, let's call them. Um, you need to think about whether or not this is a place that you can stay and make this happen because you may not be able to. It's important that you have their support because my number one recruiting tips and trick and secret is that you've got to get in that daily classroom around audition time and the months before, a couple months before probably, um, as often as possible. You've got to get your face seen because for better or worse, and, and really the, the kids who are currently in your program, for better or worse, Word of mouth is the best way to recruit people. And it's your current students recruiting their friends that aren't in it, but it's also you being present in their nine to five choral life so that they can see that you 
also know what you're doing, that you also want to be a part of, of the larger choral experience that they're having. If you can get in the room with them, offer to that director that you're happy to like, you know, sit in and listen or sing with the kids. Ask if you can come in and sing with them a little bit if you're a vocalist. Um, saying like, hey, I'd love to, you know, just maybe could I do an activity one day where I come in and like teach a little bit of movement just so they see it's not scary. The bare minimum I would say is coming in and making a couple of different types of presentations in the months before auditions, which would be like showing videos of the group in the past years, or if it's a new group, showing video of national groups, which we have a highlight reel for if show collective. If you need it, let me know. And something along those lines. And then also just having the kids who are currently in it talk about it while you're there so you can help guide the conversation a little bit. That would be my number one tip is just being in their nine to five choir life if it's possible for you. I know you may have another job, obviously, if this is a part time gig, but if you can take off one day from that other job and spend it up on that campus, even just one day, I think you'd be very surprised by what you're getting back. If you are already doing that and you're still finding that recruitment is a challenge, start placing yourself at other non-choir events. So going to see their school musical in an evening, going to see, um, you know, whatever the top sporting event in your town is, going to spectate. Because the kids that you have will see you there and see that you are invested in them, which makes them want to become more invested in the activity in general. And that gives them an opportunity to say, oh my gosh, see that person sitting over there? That's my show choir director I was telling you about. Maybe they want to come up and talk to you during halftime. Like you're making yourself available and again, I know that can be a pain in the butt when that's not really what you're being paid to do. But as you're mentioning, how do you recruit in that scenario if they're not seeing you? Well, this is how. You have to make yourself a little bit more available sometimes at the maybe expense of your free time for, you know, a few evenings, a couple of days before your auditions. But that should start to get the bar rolling in the right direction. If you're listening and neither of those things has worked, let me know and let's talk about some other options and we'll learn a little bit more about the demographics of your school and where you are and see if we can come up with another plan. Um, because I love to problem solve and that's an interesting problem. So let me know if either of those works and if they don't, let me know too and we'll see what we can find out. Okay, last question is how do I find a choreographer to hire? That one is such a common concern. I know a lot of us have had over the years. Um, it's one of those situations where it would be impossible for me to just make a list of people who do choreography because that list is ever changing. I could give you a list of people who have perennially done it, but oftentimes they are full. And so how do you find a choreographer? Well, first of all, looking at the schools surrounding you and who choreographs for them. Finding who has shows that you relate to that you like the style of and asking that director, hey, who choreographs for you? And honestly, it's usually public knowledge and posted on the website. But if you have to ask, that's OK, too. Starting there and then contacting that choreographer is probably my best thing to say as far as finding one. I will say this, though, too. Please remember that with choreography, you know, 99% of the time you're getting what you pay for. So if your kids have been doing this for a few years and you are looking to start with a new choreographer you may end up needing to pay a little more than you want to. I think when people are making that leap, that tends to be the sticker shock year. When you are just starting a group or when you haven't had a choreographer for very long, generally you're working with someone who is charged, probably undercharging you, if they're being honest. Um, but if you're ready to make a change to, to a director or show choir choreographer who's been doing it a long time and has a strong reputation for good work, you're going to pay more than you've been paying. And 
that's okay. (laughs) You're paying for their expertise. You're paying for their teaching style. You're paying for all the things you saw on stage that you loved. And if you're not ready to do that yet, maybe you can bring them in for a couple of clinics or maybe bring them in for a cleaning session just so your kids can get the experience and you can see firsthand what the teaching differences or you can see firsthand what the demeanor differences. It might tell you, hey, that's worth it. Or maybe you've decided it's not worth it. I want to invest in this younger choreographer that I've had and I want to see if I can do more for them. But that's also probably going to cost you more money. Investing in a younger choreographer looks like offering to pay for dance classes for them or experiences where they can learn more and about their trade and grow. And also giving them specific instruction for what you want to have done differently. And a lot of us aren't always feeling equipped to do that, which is why a lot of us will move on to a choreographer that doesn't need as much of that handholding. I think and have thought for a long time, and I'm pretty vocal about the fact that we need to be more okay as a show choir society with change in our creative team when necessary. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Um, You do not let someone go who's been a part of your team over a text message. No, call them. You do not let someone go over your team by just hiring someone else and letting them find out. Oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe how often that happens. If you've done it, don't do that again. Um, But if you're ready to make a change, that's okay. Just know that there could be hurt feelings involved and you need to think about how you're handling that. But how to find a choreographer in your area is just actually as simple as asking questions of the people in your area. If you're really stuck and you don't know anyone in your area, you can also contact Show Collective and we are happy to help you with a list of people that we know are working in your area that have a strong choreography reputation. So there's a couple ideas for you. But again, knowing people around you and asking questions, that's the number one deal. Here we go. It's my favorite thing to do. Let's rant. (laughs) Uh, I promise it's not going to be just a bunch of complaining. These are very valuable pet peeves and things that we all kind of have to deal with. So this part of the segment from a collaboration standpoint is just made to make you feel less alone. (laughs) If you have dealt with these sorts of feelings, know that it's not just you feeling about that. All right, as far as pet peeves goes, we get a lot of comments about things like no facials or no vitality or life on stage in the kids' faces. You know what? That is super common in beginning groups or groups with directors who really don't place a high value on that. Um, it's a showmanship issue. It's a performance issue. It's a You're really doing theater, and it's important to remember that as well. Yes, we want you to sing well. Yes, we want you to dance well. That's 99% of the scorecard. But really, it's pretty hard to engage audiences let alone judges, without facials. It's pretty important. However, I don't know about you, but nothing turns me off more (laughs) than non-organic facials. And what I mean by that is just some sort of plastered smile on your face, no matter what the song is. It needs to relate to the lyrics, my friends. If you are struggling with your kids and, and facials, Go through a lyric study with them. Talk about what the words are. How does that make them feel? Connect that to emotions for them and then discuss how to portray those emotions on stage. In general, emotions have to be bigger from a stage standpoint to register. Absolutely, that's true. But there's a difference between like lift your eyebrows and smile as a general concept and things actually relating to what's going on on stage organically. I'm with you. That one's an annoying one. Uh, Somebody said loud feet. You know what? I don't notice this one a ton anymore. A lot of us are getting away from the harder heeled shoes. So that's part of it. Um, But I also think that there is um, kind of a knowledge in general um, amongst most show choirs about 
good dance technique, which means that you are more often dancing with the balls of your feet and on your toes, less of that heel landing in general. So um, if you can focus on that, that'll remove that from the scenario. But yes, when I do hear it and it's so loud, it keeps me from being able to score you or enjoy your show. <laughs> That's a problem for sure. Okay. Um, somebody said, and I love this one because I feel this deeply, you know, I'm in Texas. We talked about that before. Texas is a state that has a really burgeoning show choir scene and the ones who do it are doing it very well. And I'm incredibly proud to be a part of that and incredibly proud to say that I helped start that, you know, back in the early 2000s. But, um, there are so many directors still and programs in our state, especially, and I know where you live too, that just don't see it as a valuable experience. And this person commented that, you know, show choir doesn't get enough credit for how much skill it takes. It's not as easy as it looks. I want that tattooed somewhere. Like it's so much more than, hey, let's do some step touching and with our singing. These kids are incredible athletes, incredible. And they, no matter what skill level you're doing it at, the fact that they are moving and singing at the same time like, y'all, half of us can't even, like, drive and do the five things that have to happen while driving at the same time. So, like, you need to make sure your kids understand that you are incredibly proud of them no matter where they are on that learning curve of that process. Because it takes a lot to get in there and be good at that. Also, it doesn't get enough credit for how much skill it takes. I think a lot of that leans on the vocal side as well. I think those who are doing it well vocally... um, just, yeah, really do not get enough credit for how much work they're doing to make that happen. It's not hard work. It's just work outside the norm. And sometimes we're dealing with a lot of negative energy from directors who don't do it in that case. Um, talking about like the sensibility of pop styling of, um, of pronunciation and placement. Um, it, that's a skill. It's not something lazy. It's not like, well, anyone can do that, but not anyone can sing, you know, this specific piece that's on our Allstate roster. Okay, yeah, great. They're all skill level things. They're all things that have to be taught and rehearsed and practiced. So yes, I side with you on that rant. Doesn't get enough credit. Totally. (laughs) This one cracked me up. It just says, dark shows. That's the tweet. And I know this person, so I know that the context of that is the dislike of everyone feeling like they need to do dark shows. Um, I will give a caveat to say, I think when a dark show is done incredibly well and thoughtfully, um, that's an exception. There are certainly some, quote, dark shows that I like. What do we mean by dark shows? Meaning that there's not really a redemptive arc at the end of the show. It doesn't end on a hopeful note. Um that it really tells a storyline that it's not going to be a feel-good show. Truly, I have some of my favorite shows like that. Like, I think the best example of a dark show done really well would be maybe Ankeny Centennial's Titanic year. Because, y'all, we know how that's going to end. <laughs> like, it doesn't end great unless you're, like, one of the people that ends up in a lifeboat. Um, but there's a lot of levity to that show as well. There's a lot of bright spots and beautiful moments. So that's such a great example of a dark show done well. Also with Ankeny Centennial, thinking about the Black Swan year. If you haven't seen that, go look at that. That is 20, 20, no, 2019, I think. Um, that's a dark show. Like the show is dark. The stage is dark <laughs> and the subject matter is dark. But again, it's just so beautiful and executed just 
just to almost perfection. I mean, holy cow, is it incredible. That's different than I think the kind of dark shows that this person is talking about. When we say dark show where it's like, I am so sad and everyone hates me and there's just only that for 22 minutes, you know, that's friends, that's not connective to an audience. You have to find a way to open up vulnerability inside of a dark show in order for people to feel like they can put themselves in that with you. And a lot of dark shows exclude the audience from that. It becomes about just the pain being experienced on stage and just um, living through it and, you know, and not that that's bad, but it's not the same as something that will resonate with others outside of the stage. So dark shows certainly have their place, but you got to really know what you want your outcome to be and that your kids are going to execute it just to absolute beautiful perfection in order for that to be a viable concept. And for schools that do dark shows perennially, um, that gets really old sometimes really quickly. So if you feel like you have done them a lot recently, maybe think about changing it up a little bit. That, that's my best piece of advice there. I think that's an important thing to say. Uh, okay, next part here. Um, this is related to what we were talking about a minute ago with the skill it takes, which is that show choir is just as valuable as classical music, as this person's using the term classical music. Um, any music your kids are willing to perform to sing and, oh, sorry, to willing to sing and perform is a way to reach them educationally and ground them in music. It doesn't have to be on the PML to learn. Well, you've learned in this moment, if you're a Texas person, that this person is from Texas because we have something called the prescribed music list, which is the PML. And we have to use it when we're choosing music for contest and also solo and ensembles. So, um, I understand what this person is saying. And if your state has something along those lines too, you know that there's freedom in show choir because you can choose literally whatever you want for anything, which is a great feeling. But yes, yes, yes. A thousand times yes to that. It is just as valuable as all other forms of music. Um, And I want to keep everyone remembering that show choir isn't a genre of music. Show choir is a vehicle for various genres of music. Okay. It's just a performance style. It's not a genre in and of itself. That's one of my pet peeves. There you go. Okay. There were eight from this particular day alone that were about the value, the educational value, getting credit, all that kind of stuff of show choir. So it's, and these are from different states, most of them. So I, it's important that you hear that we feel that too. Even those of us who have been doing it for a long time, it is a thing, but at some point you have to get past that and go, I'm not going to try to prove its educational value to you. It's going to prove itself. And that's okay to just get to a place where you're like, it's going to prove itself. I don't have to prove anything because you don't have to prove anything. Do your kids love music? Are they going to become lifelong musicians in some capacity, even in just the enjoyment and the consumerism of it? Great. You did your job. I'm serious. (laughs) All right. Let's talk costumes for a second. Costumes don't have to be sequin dresses and suits. There are other options that are often cheaper. That is so true. That is so true. Um, There is a lot that you can do from a costume standpoint. I think the only guideline I would give on that is you want to make sure that they look well done. That doesn't mean they have to be expensive, but cheap doesn't have to look cheap. So keep that in mind. If you're someone who is not great at costuming, guys, I will say that is, 
I wouldn't count it among my top three strengths of show choir abilities. Um, so I lean heavily on people who that is their strength. I know directors and friends who that is really their gift. So like find some people in your life who love it and you think are good at it. Look at choirs where you're like, oh, their kids are always impeccably dressed. Ask them who helps design that. So you can ask questions of people. Again, that doesn't mean they're expensive. It just means they're well-crafted and curated. And I agree that costumes don't always have to be a sequin dress and a suit. Sometimes that's fine. Sometimes that doesn't make your show stronger. So that's okay. Uh, I saved this one for last because it's my absolute favorite comment. And you know me, I will stand on this soapbox until I die, which is that conversational diction matters. Oh my goodness. Stylistically appropriate diction and tone is my number one thing that I like to preach about, about show choir. Because it is the thing that separates our style of performance from other styles of performance in choral world, okay? It is unique to the piece in front of you. It is unique to the genre in front of you. And absolutely, choral music should be that way too. Traditional choral music, it often isn't. Um, here, we get to explore that notion. If it is conversational diction in the original source material, which nine times out of 10 for show choir it is, you should be doing some form of conversational diction. There are a million points in other episodes on the podcast where we talk about this. Um, also, a lot of that information is in in the collective, which if you've never seen the collective cohort on show collective, it is a year's worth of show choir content that you can purchase. And it's all digital downloads. It's video work for your kids. It's video warmups with Eric Hall and Steph Hyatt. And it's meditations and it's journaling, but for the social emotional side, but there's also content in there about this, how to work on stylized diction and tone and placement and all that fun stuff. So that's there available to you. It's online to purchase right now. You can purchase at any time on the website if you want to see that. Um, but I encourage you to talk to others again who are doing it well. It doesn't mean a one size fits all diction style. It means you are applying what the original source material is like to your kid's styling of singing. And I guarantee it's not likely to be if it's contemporary, tall vowels with lots of backspace placed towards the back. It's just not likely to be. Also, you do not need to put percussive diction mid-phrase in this style. Also, you front load most of the words which is on emphasis, which is how we speak. That's why we say conversational diction. So yes, a hundred times a thousand. I agree with you on that one. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, this episode is not going to have the um, top show I've ever done and top show I've ever been a part of because I've said those many, many times. And so the conversation, the questions that get ever by asked by everyone are not present on this episode. Um, but I will tell you, if you're looking for something to go watch today, the number one show listed from people on all five seasons of Preaching to the Choir when asked about their favorite show, the number one that gets mentioned almost every episode is Wheaton Warrenville South Wizard of Oz show from 2012. So if you've never watched it, consider today to be the day. This is me saying you need to go online, you need to go watch it, you would very much enjoy it. You can just Google that and it will show up. Um, so if you need a little bit of show choir today. Otherwise, thanks for listening in. We cannot wait to bring you the rest of the season starting next week. Um, we've got three more episodes to go before school starts again and we are back to the races, but um, I hope you've enjoyed the summer so far and I know you're going to love what's to come. Thanks guys. Thanks guys.